At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I agreed to some exploratory surgery that I was absolutely positive I didn't need. But not only did I agree to it, I insisted it be done sooner rather than later. So it was like, you know, a double double idiocy. So it turned out I didn't need it. Everything was fine. But I felt so ashamed and so angry at myself. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 236. Well, hey there, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. Today, I have a really great topic for women. This is a topic about how women manage and mismanage their health with Susan Salinger. Susan Salinger is the author and researcher behind the book, Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health and examines the many ways in which some women manage and sometimes mismanage their healthcare. Susan explores how women, typically the medical gatekeepers for their families, tend to be extremely conscientious about taking care of themselves, yet at the same time inadvertently undermine their own care. They often hesitate to call the doctor when they don't feel well and worry that their doctor visit will take away time from their families or work. They may hesitate to ask doctors necessary questions and don't always comply with the doctor's instructions. Salinger's research reveals how conflicted many women are about the medical decisions they ultimately make. So Susan was born and raised in Los Angeles. She attended UCLA to study English and after graduation, she worked alongside her husband Fred for 25 years at their production company, Salinger Films, which produced corporate training and development films distributed worldwide. Today at age 80, Susan lives in Northern California to be near her incredible family, which includes her two daughters, four grandchildren, a cat named Max and a dog named J.D. Salinger. When she is not speaking about her book or spending time with family and friends, you will find Susan powerlifting to stay in shape. So in this episode, we talk about why she wrote this book and how that came about. She wrote at the age of 79 and why women struggle to seek the care they need, the three most common hurdles they need to overcome to improve their health care. I asked her if she's seen any generational differences when she did the research for her book, why women blame themselves for her for their own health care problems, how they can how we can balance empowering women about their health, but not overemphasizing personal responsibility. She gives us her top three tips for women who want to better manage their health and decision-making capabilities. And then we talk about her because I was really curious about how she ended up writing her first book at age 79. Talk about her powerlifting and her exercise routine, her morning routine, and her longevity secrets. So this is a really great episode. I think you're going to get some great information. But 
I really recommend you get this book. There's really good tips. There's a great resource list at the back that could really help you for making sure that you're doing the best in your own healthcare to ask the questions you need to ask and to not be afraid to take action when you need help. I think this is so important. One of the big takeaways from this conversation is don't put yourself last. Emphasize your own health, emphasize your own self-care because that's what's going to help you get to the well-being and longevity that you desire. So veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here. For all the old and the new listeners, I appreciate you so much. And now let's welcome Susan Salinger to the show. Susan Salinger, welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm so excited to learn more about you. You've written this fabulous book, a great cover as well, very eye-catching. But I want to start with, why did you even write this book? What spurred your interest in this topic? Well, it was, and actually there was a couple of things. It started years and years ago with a personal experience that I had where I agreed to some exploratory surgery that I was absolutely positive I didn't need. But not only did I agree to it, I insisted it be done sooner rather than later. So it was like, you know, a double double idiocy. Um, anyway, so it turned out I didn't need it. Everything was fine. But I felt so ashamed and so angry at myself. And then I let it go, you know, and I was I was working. And then years later, after I retired, I went to UCLA and took some anthropology classes. I had to go back to school. I was just bored. And so I took some medical anthropology classes. And I learned a lot of information about women's health that is not out there. It's not out in the public. Academics, you know, as I'm sure you know, write for each other. And so, so much of this information was just not getting out to the public. And that it it turned it reminded me of my own experience because of some interviews I did. And I thought to myself, I'm going to, I interviewed a bunch of women who had had hysterectomies, some had chronic diseases, some were in, you know, just chronic pain. And a lot of them had agreed to surgeries, procedures that they too didn't think they needed. And so I thought, well, how do women, how do we as women make our medical decisions? And that it just encouraged me to start doing a lot of research and talk to a lot of women. I think I talked to about 50 women and, and put together a couple of focus groups and all with different diseases, but they all had this very similar behaviors. Their diseases were different, but the way they behaved towards themselves and their doctors was very similar, regardless of the disease. So a book was born. <laughs> it's so fascinating. And I'm just so impressed that <laughs> you're claiming that you were bored. So you went back to school and then you became passionate about something that you, it wasn't the focus of your career at all. So this is like a completely different turn in your life, but you've become passionate in it. And it's such an important topic. But one thing I really love about your book as well is that you delve into history and how this is not a new thing. <laughs> this has been around for a long time. This is my favorite chapter. It really was. So women do 75% of the caretaking in the world. But when it comes to their own health, they struggle to seek the care that they need. So can you talk to us about what are the three most common hurdles that women need to overcome to improve their health care? 
Well, I think the first thing actually is ourselves. As women, many of us tend to put ourselves last. There, you'll, you'll like this. There was a study done where they uh, asked, they gave women a list of five different things to prioritize. And the first thing women, of course, would take care of is their children. The second thing is their pets, which is the part I loved. The third thing was elderly parents or family members. The fourth thing was their significant others. And the fifth thing, last but not least, was themselves. And I think that that really interferes with our own health care. We should be taking care of ourselves really first so that we can take care of others. Because when you're dragging around, you don't feel well and you, it's really hard to take care of somebody else. And I think maybe the second reason is shame. Women are so ashamed. We blame ourselves. So many of us blame ourselves for becoming ill. Um, there, there was another story done, which is funny, but not funny, where researchers uh, asked women who, if they were suffering a heart attack, what they thought were heart attack symptoms, how many of them would call 911? And only 50% of them said they would make that call. The reason was they were too ashamed to have the paramedics see their messy house. <laughs> My editor said, imagine this on your tombstone. If only she had kept a neater house, she'd be alive today. I mean, it's funny, but it isn't funny. I mean, shame can be fatal, as, as that story really shows. And I think the third thing is by going to the doctor, we're, we're embarrassed. Not, not only are we ashamed, but we're afraid that the doctor is going to tell us that we should have done this or we shouldn't have done that. And we're almost afraid of what we're going to hear. So I think those three things together, and really number three is sort of a subset of number two, but shame and embarrassment and putting ourselves last would really be the two primary reasons. And they have, they have tendrils that, that grow out from there. But yes, it's so complex and there's lots of different factors, but I think that that third point is particularly important. Something that I'm very passionate about myself is weight stigma and weight bias. And there's so yes. many studies that show that women avoid healthcare because they're afraid that when they go, everything's gonna be blamed on their weight or they're gonna be told to lose weight. They know that they haven't been able to lose weight because we know how difficult that is, right? And so then they just don't go and it will lead to delayed diagnoses or misdiagnoses Correct. and those kinds of things. So it, it's a very complicated topic that really is affecting women very strongly. So this is really important that you cover this. I wanna go back to that first point really quick though which uh, I wonder how many husbands complain that they're next to last, that the pets actually come before them. <laughs> I love it though. I think we all know the kids come first, right? Like no, every mom's like the kids come first, but I was expecting the husbands to be next, but no, it was the pets. <laughs> I know, imagine taking care of, you know, you're taking your, your dog to the vet when your husband's lying there with a heart attack. <laughs> I love it, I love it. One thing that I was curious about as I was reading your book is, did you see any striking generational differences? Do you think that things are starting to change a little bit? Are women starting to take charge and have less shame and embarrassment seeking medical care? Or do you think that the trend is still continuing even with the newer generation? That's a really good question. 
I don't know. First of all, most of the women I interviewed were between 40 and 60. So I, I didn't interview many 20-year-olds. Um, my guess would be, and I guess it's an I guess it's an educated guess that it's probably getting better. I think the I'm just thinking of my own kids, for example. I think that the younger generation is more willing and more apt to speak up and speak out. Um, you know, I had a, an experience also many years ago where I just I had a cyst. It turned out to be a cyst, and the the doctor did a biopsy, and I didn't say much during the during my visit. And I only asked one question and I said, well, I, I forgot what I said, something about, will you let, I don't know what I said, but I asked one question and he said, well, why don't you leave the driving to us? And I didn't say anything. I mean, I thought to myself, screw you. And that's putting it politely because you know, we're on video here. But the reality is I think that my kids would have spoken up and said, hey, wait a minute. I would now that I'm older and a little more experienced. But I, yeah. I do think that it's getting better. I hope so. I really yeah. do. I think, well, I'm a pediatrician. So that's, I'm a physician myself. And my profession is working with children, which means I'm pretty much working with parents. And yeah. the parents that I work with are usually, you know, 20s to 30s, some 40s as their children are getting into teenagehood. But I am seeing a lot of the younger generation. And I will say that there are changes. One thing that I notice is that sometimes uh, they will boldly leave off my title. <laughs> so I'm often wow. called just by my first name. So huh. that's something that's changing a lot. And I have mixed feelings about that. So I'm still still <laughs> processing that one. Um, but I think that there's also less fear of asking questions and less fear of seeking outside resources or even just coming in and specifically having certain requests and demands. So it, I think it is changing for the younger generation, but these are also women advocating for their children. So it's probably a little different than women seeking care for themselves, right? But yes. I, I do see a little bit of a shift with the younger generation myself. Oh, I'm glad to hear that because I, I would think so. Definitely. Why do you think that women blame themselves so much for their own health problems? You know, I think part of that goes back to the history that, that we were chatting about earlier. I think for one thing, you know, it goes, our, our women's bodies have been demeaned for, devalued for so many years. I mean, it goes all the way back to, to ancient Egypt and probably even before, you know, and it, it's it's fascinating because it transcends cultures. I mean, the Dutch say, you know, that having daughters is like a cellar full of sour beer. And the Chinese called us maggots in the rice. I mean, this is, women are not valued. Aristotle thought we were leaky vessels because we menstruate and cry. And our uterus was thought to meander, you know, throughout our bodies and cause all sorts of morality issues and sexual issues. I mean, it's just been years and years. The, it's it's my favorite chapter, as I said. I love medical history, and I think that some of us have internalized that. It's it's pervasive. It's it's not cultural. It's as I said, it's all over. And I think also that currently, and I I almost hate to say this, but I think that the wellness movement 
has really, in some ways, although I think they've it's done a lot of good and given women and men some really wonderful tips on how to live healthily, but by the same token, its assumption is that if you take really good care of yourself, you won't be sick. You have to think positive, take the right actions, so that if you do get sick, it's because you screwed up in some way. And I think that that's really done a disservice to patients. Would yeah. you agree with that as a doctor? Oh. I'm curious. I was going to say I 100% agree with you <laughs> because I, I'm in it's this movement. Fun. So I'm in the wellness movement, especially coming from the plant-based nutrition side where we talk about lifestyle medicine, all these things. And I do think that it's a very delicate balance because my goal is to empower people, but not to tip over into that feeling that everything is your personal responsibility. That if you became sick, it's your fault, you know? Correct. So it's like, we have to do this balance of giving people just enough of that feeling that they can take their health into their hands because some people don't believe they can at all. Right. So you have to inspire them, but at the same time, you don't want it going all the way over to like anything that's ever happened to you is because you didn't do something about it, you know? Right. So, so it is difficult. And that actually was my next question is how can we balance empowering women about their health and not overemphasizing personal responsibility, knowing that women already are blaming themselves for everything that happens to them? You know, I, I think it's important, and this is a place maybe the doctors can help. And as I didn't realize what I'm going to say next until I did my research, but there are there's so many diseases out there, 20 to 40,000 of them, something like that. And diagnoses are really difficult. The randomness of disease, for, there's two issues, really. Let, let's start with diagnoses, because women are misdiagnosed more often than men. And I think that that's a problem. And I think that's one of the things that women need to learn to take charge of. But I also think that the randomness of disease is so, women need to realize that they're not responsible. I mean, of course, self-care is important. I'm not going to say it's not, obviously. But some people get COVID and some don't. And some, pe some people need this and others need that. And it's genetics and environment and stress levels. It isn't necessarily our fault. It can be. I mean, probably smokers get lung cancer more than, than non-smokers. But non-smokers get lung cancer too. And not all smokers get lung cancer. And not all non-smokers are lung cancer free. So you just don't know. It's a question of luck as well as self-care, genetics, environment. And I think that's important. But I want to just talk about diagnoses for a minute, because that is a place that women can take charge. And I really want to in, help women understand the importance of second opinions, because disease is random, and so many of the symptoms mimic one another. And it's so it can be hard, and again, I'll be curious if you agree, but sometimes you can, it's a diagnosis can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. I mean, I think that if a, per, a patient comes in and says they're tired and they don't feel well and they lack appetite, et cetera, I mean, those symptoms can fit so many different diseases that I don't know how you guys narrow it down. I really don't. I think it must be really tricky. Is that accurate for, for some stuff? 
It is accurate. And before I became a doctor, I had this idea that whenever you become a physician, you just know, like you just have all the knowledge and then you just know. And I think maybe some people still think that. But the truth is, you know, you said that maybe there's like 40,000 diagnoses. Those are known diagnoses. There's probably a million out there we don't know about. And there's so many right. things we still don't understand about the human body. There's things that happen in my body right. that I know that there's no doctor that will be able to tell me why it happens. Because I know that there's no, I know that there's no, it's just, there's a lot of things that we're still discovering and it's a moving target because our world is changing around us. We have right. more exposure right. to chemicals and toxins and all kinds of stuff. Our stress levels, everything is changing at the same time. So there's no way we can know everything at all ever, I don't think. So I think, you know, for people to know that doctors are doing the best that they can, but if you're not satisfied with something, if you still have that feeling of like, there's, there's something else, I need more information, I need to seek help from somebody else. I think you're right in that it doesn't hurt to keep seeking and to keep looking for answers to something right. that at this point, we may not quite have all the answers. And in, pedi in pediatrics, I think that's something we know as well, because we see children and there's children that are born with genetic issues right. or genetic conditions that we still don't have diagnoses for. We just know that things are a little bit off. They're not developing yeah. right, but we do all the tests and nothing is coming up yet there's still treatments we can do to help some of those symptoms. So even if you can't exactly put a name to something that's happening, what are the things I can do to start feeling better, to get to the well-being, the health that I'm desiring? What are the what are the, some of the treatments or the yeah. medications or self-care things that I can do to start feeling better and to Right. That's the part maybe that we can empower people to take charge instead of feeling like, oh, well, I, I'm just going to give up because this is all my fault. Right. Well, and I think it's important to realize that I, I think it's, I don't know, 12 million people or so are misdiagnosed each year and that many of those are women and uh, particularly black women, uh, you know, well, white women too, but black women even more so. And I think it's just really important, and I've, I've stressed this in previous podcasts, for women to get second opinions. Um, we hesitate. Men get second opinions more than we do. We don't want to be rude, and we don't want to upset the doctor. We don't want to hurt his feelings. We've been taught to play nice. And so as a result, in fact, uh, one of the women I interviewed said she would never get a second opinion. She was so afraid that she would be labeled a difficult patient and it would, that black mark on her record would follow her throughout her medical, what career, I guess is the word. Um, and that's, that's sad because a doctor can make an honest mistake. We all can. And some doctors are more competent than others too, of course. I mean, that's true in every profession. Um, so please get a second opinion. <laughs> if I share anything this morning, that's it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think that just goes back to something that I've realized about myself. I'm a very bold person. I go after what I want, but I've realized that I do have a pretty significant yep. aspect of people pleasing inside of me too, which I guess isn't right. too much of a surprise. You know, I'm in a in the service oriented profession and, and that kind of stuff. But, but what you said about not That's wanting right. to be difficult, I think of the B right. word, right? We don't want to be bees. Like we don't right. want to be seen as a too demanding or wanting too much or being yes. selfish yes. or greedy. Those are big trigger words for women. 
you know? And so whenever we're in a situation and we feel like there's something else we want, but it's trying to juggle that between, okay, am I going to be seen right. as too demanding or even quote crazy or something like that? We just don't want to have those labels. So we keep quiet, but then it's ultimately hurting our own health. Right. Right. And that that does lead into something about being too demanding, because I was shocked to find out that only about 15 percent of women will tell the doctor when they don't understand something. So that <coughs> that means we must be hesitant. I mean, that means really what it really means is 85 percent of us leave the doctor's office without fully or really understanding what was said. And I think that that, again, is because we want to play nice. We don't want to be demanding. We want the doctor to think we understand so that he thinks we're smart and sophisticated and all those things. Um, and I think it's damaging. It can really hurt us. Uh, absolutely. So let's talk about some of the things that we can do. So what are your top three tips for women who better want to manage their health or want to better manage their health and decision-making capabilities when it comes to their well, I think the first thing, and I can't stress this enough, is get a second opinion. The second thing, and I maybe I should reverse them, but when you go into the doctor for your doctor visit, first of all, make a list. Write out what it is you want to talk about. If you're like me, you'll get I get anxious, and I, I'll 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 forget what I wanted to say. And if I have, I mean, write the list. And it don't just have a list in your head. Write it down on a piece of paper and take it in. And I think it's really important if you, when you get a diagnosis to ask the doctor, what else could this possibly be? And I always ask the doctor for the clinical name of my disease. And ha I usually have him or her write it out so that I can go home and do my research. And we'll talk about research in a minute. But I think it's really important to do that. And also, I try to because of all my research now, I try to repeat back what I heard the doctor say in my own words. And that gives the doctor a chance to either confirm that I heard correctly or say, well, you know, no, I didn't mean that. This is what I meant. So that I go out with a fairly full, accurate understanding of what what it is I was told. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. But in terms of research, uh, there's a, the most important part of my book is actually at the very back of it. There's a big resource list. I've done your research for you. Uh, if you want to research your disease, your doctor, your hospital, it's it's our the research. My resource list is organized by categories, so it's very easy for you to just go to the category that you want to check out. You can it tells you how to do your symptoms, etc. And I think that that's really important so that you have an overview of what the disease is, what you can expect, what the various protocols are for the treatment, et cetera. And that really helps you put, it doesn't put you in charge, but you and the doctor can become more of a team. You shouldn't be in charge because you don't know as much as the doctor does theoretically. But I do think it's better if you can work as a team. Absolutely, it's definitely a partnership. And I think as physicians, we appreciate that too. We appreciate 
at least I do, I appreciate when parents and families are asking those questions so that I can understand what it is that they're still anxious about or what they need more information right. about. And a lot of times there might be a slight misunderstanding there that's completely changing it so that they're really stressed about something. And whenever I explain it, they're like, oh, I'm so glad I, you explained that and clarified because the way that they were understanding it was completely different right. than, than what right. is accurate. So let me review those. I think these are really important. So make a list. And I often see my parents do this for their children. Yeah. So they come ready on their iPhone. They have the list of things <laughs> they want to talk about. Um, ask what else could this be? Get the clinical name, get more information about that, and then get a second opinion. So I'm curious, after you've learned all of these things, you've done this research, how has it changed your approach whenever you go into the doctor? Have you felt that things have improved for you? Is there anything that has surprised you since you've been implementing some of these techniques? Yeah, what's improved for me is that I found that I have a better understanding of what my diagnosis is and also a more comfortable understanding of my treatment options. I'm better able to make a treatment decision if, if there are possibilities. If the, if the doctor says, well, we could do this, we could do this, or we could do that, I have a bet, I have a more educated guess at saying, well, I think number two might be best because what do you think? And so it's given me some tools to help me organize my, my thought processes and my treatment options. I think that that's very important. And getting a second opinion, it, I mean, you know, not if, not if I break my leg, I don't necessarily get a second opinion. But if it's, if it's something like, a, like surgery, it gives me a chance to hear a, hear a different point of view. And again, that further educates me so that I, again, have more, even more tools to take back to my original doctor. Okay, that's great. What would you like other healthcare professionals to know about this topic? And especially when they care for women, if, you know, there's a lot of healthcare professionals that are listeners of this podcast. So what do you want them to take away from this? I think two things. I think that they really need to be sure that their patients are comfortable asking questions. Don't say, let us drive the bus. I mean, I really wanted to kill the guy. You know? that, that's, that's, not, that's not conducive to, to a working relationship. And I think also, I think it's very important to be aware as for healthcare providers, as well as for women patients, we talk to doctors differently. And as women, we need to be aware of that, but so do doctors. When we describe our symptoms, we tend to, as women, we tend to describe our feelings and we talk how we, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. We talk about how we feel about something. And I can be so busy telling the doctor the whole story about how it's affecting me, whatever the it is, that my physical symptoms get lost in the morass of all my emotions. And I think that that's something that doctors need to be able to, to pull out and not just prescribe antidepressants, for example, or some, and I think that that's kind of a fallback diagnosis for women. You know, there was a really interesting little study done where there was um, a man and a woman patient, both of whom had exact same symptoms, cardiac risk symptoms. And the, the, the purpose of the, of the 
research was to find out if there was a difference in diagnoses between the men and the women because the symptoms were exactly the same. And when stress was not mentioned, the men and women both received patients, both received a cardiac diagnosis and prescribed a cardiac workup. As soon as stress was mentioned, however, only 15% of the women received a cardiac diagnosis. And I think that as doctors and as women, we all need to be aware of that. Uh, in fact, one article I read said, if you think you're having a heart attack and you go to emergency or wherever, don't leave without an echocardiogram. Don't let them tell you it's stress or a stomach ache. Um, again, you would know if that's correct. But I think that it's really important for doctors to realize the difference in conversation styles. And women minimize symptoms. I, I talked to a doctor yesterday on a different podcast, and she said uh, when women come in with menstrual pains, they'll talk about a little discomfort. And so uh, as she continues the conversation, she'll find out that they're actually in bed all day with cramps. So minimal discomfort went from a one on the pain scale to a 10 on the pain scale. So we minimize symptoms because again, we don't wanna bother anybody. This all comes back to that same, that same stuff, doesn't it? It circles back. Yeah. And yeah, I it's... hope that answered your question because there's so yes, much to sure. say to that question. It is, it is pretty incredible. And I could see how this can really affect the healthcare of ourselves, but some of the women that we care for dearly in our lives. So I think this is really yes. important information to get out there. So what do you wish more women knew? I wish more women knew, number one, to how to talk to their doctor. I do think it's important to tell the doctor how we feel, but I also think it's important to stay focused, stay on topic, and hence the agenda. And I think that also women need to know to do their own research. So as I said, they too can become more comfortable with the diagnosis. And with education is a wonderful thing because it helps you understand. You're not, you, you become less frightened. You're still frightened, but you become less frightened. It's, it, the fright takes a different, it's a different framework and it's hard to articulate, frankly. And I think it's really important to remember that it's your body and you are in charge of it. And you want to make sure that you select the doctor, the appropriate doctor, the appropriate treatment, and don't do what I did. Don't just agree because the doctor said so. That was a that was I I exposed myself to a lot of unnecessary risks. Hospitals are dangerous places, so I think those three things: just take charge of your body and do your research, please. That that will help you enormously, and so will organizing your symptoms. That agenda is very important. Great, great advice. Well, I'd like to shift gears a little bit because okay. I want to learn a little bit more about you because I am curious about you, Sue. So tell me, do you have a morning routine? And if so, what is it? Well, I do have a morning routine. I'm a very routine kind of person. First of all, I get up early. You would hate me in the morning. I kind of spring out of bed about 5 or 5.30. I've never used an alarm clock in my life. And, the you know, I, I take my shower, et cetera, and then I, I pretty much have the same breakfast, which is either a bowl of oatmeal or a bowl of cereal or something. And I add flax and chia seeds and, you know, raspberries or blueberries and a little bit of nuts. So I get all kinds of fiber and roughage. And then about four mornings a week, I exercise. 
I do Pilates three times a week and um, I do weightlifting just about a half hour a week. I used to do it more, but it's harder over Zoom. I, I got so I can only, I can't, I was lifting pretty heavy weights. And now that I'm doing Zoom instead of going to the gym, I can't lift the weights by myself. So I used to have to have my trainer hand them to me. So I, now I only just do, you know, about a half hour a week. And I try to walk. I'm not very good at that. Um, I like to talk to people. So I need a person there. So walking by myself is tricky. But so that's a, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty stable routine for me. And I love I love it. I love the exercise. I love the Pilates and I love my breakfast. <laughs> Sounds great. No, I, I don't hate you because I'm like you, I'm a morning person. So yeah. I wake up early as well and I'm ready to go and I don't drink coffee. So I'm a non-coffee morning person. I have one cup. <laughs> nice. Um, tell me about the experience of writing your first book at the age of 79. Did you have to overcome any mental obstacles. Yes, I did very much so. First of all, I thought, because, you know, writing is such hard work. And I thought to myself, why am I doing this? I'm going to be, or now I am, I'm 80 years old. Just do something, read a, read a good book. Don't write one. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just so passionate about women's health. And I was so passionate about some of the information I learned. And just, it was so interesting because this anthropology was so serendipitous. I was an English major in school and I went back to school thinking maybe I'd get a master's or a doctorate in English or maybe even psych, but those, they were closed. And the only thing open that I could get in that was remotely interesting to me was the anthropology. So I sort of fell into it and it turned out to be, you know, the best thing I ever did. I think if I hadn't done that, I probably wouldn't have written the book. But I learned, as I said, so much good information. I thought I almost have a, a duty to get it out there. And I love to research and I love to write. I've been a writer all my life, not books. But my husband and I used to produce uh, training films for business and industry. And I wrote the scripts. So I'm certainly a, you know familiar with writing and research. And I loved it. I mean, I wasn't bored yeah. anymore. <laughs> Definitely board. not. Uh, writing a book is a big deal. And you're an excellent writer. Thank you're an you. excellent writer. I think I, I really felt like your writing style was just so easy to read, yet very written very smartly. And, you know, it comes across very well. So I was very impressed. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I'd much. love to know, especially since you're so productive and, you know, doing all of this stuff at the age of 80, do you have any longevity secrets for us? Gee, well, yeah, I guess I do. I think the I've been exercising for about forty years, and I have to say, I would, uh, you know, my parents were were weren't sick. I have very good genes genetically. I'm one of the lucky ones, but I think that the exercise has really impacted the quality of my life. <laughs> I used to hate it so, but I, <laughs> excuse me, I did it anyway. And now that I'm 80, looking back on it, because I, I can see that I move differently from a lot of other 80-year-olds. I mean, if you saw me walk, I walk like you do. Um, and I'm short, so I always walk fast to keep up with people. And I still could walk fast, you know. I, I would say that exercise, both weightlifting and Pilates, the combination, I think, is just wonderful. Um, and I think having some time to myself, particularly now that I'm older and my kids are out of the house, I love to read. And so I try to, because there's nobody here, you know, there's no kids here. Um, I always try to take time for myself and read a book if I can. Um, 
So it just, you know, kind of depends how your life goes, I guess. Yeah. Well, tell me about the power lifting, because I know you had in your bio and you said that you're still lifting. So how old are you when you started lifting weights and how did you get into that? Oh, my goodness. I got into it about 40 years ago. I was diagnosed with osteoporosis. And so they said, you better do some resistance. And I got really scared because they told me that I would probably break a hip if I stepped off a curve or something. And I thought, that's not me. I can't do that. So I really did start lifting heavy weights because it's great for bones, you know, and I did that for at least 30 years, 40 years until COVID. In fact, really, I stopped uh, going to the gym during COVID. Um, And so then, as I said, we started doing it over Zoom and I started Pilates over Zoom. But I think that um, I love powerlifting. In some ways, I really like it. In some ways, I like Pilates better because you go from one activity to the other. Weightlifting can be boring. But what I love about it is that you can really see your, I mean, you go from two pounds to four pounds. I mean, it's like getting an A plus every time you get to go up a, a pound or two. And I got pretty heavy. I was really proud of myself. I was pretty good. Um there was this guy at the gym who was about six eight, and I'm about four ten. And he said, "Listen, if I'm ever in a dark alley, will you come with me and protect me?" Great. <laughs> I was this little old woman at the gym, but I was really doing pretty well, and it made me feel good about myself, as you can hear. <laughs> Absolutely, and that is so powerful for longevity and for aging is really maintaining that muscle mass and that bone mass. It protects so much. And, you know, you made the comment about how you feel like you you can walk just as fast. And that's actually one of the tests they do for aging. Right. It's like this simple test where they basically see how fast a person can walk a certain amount of distance. And you're able to see the frailty set in right. as people get older and they cannot walk. Very, they can't get up from the chair and walk across, right. you know, as fast. So that's very important. So basically what you're telling me is that you've been able to maintain your health yes. and that's going to help support your longevity as well. So do you think you'll you'll go back to the gym or are you going to stay on Zoom I for now? I think I'll stay on Zoom. At this point, I'm a little COVID phobic. And because partly because I'm 80, you know, older people don't do as well. I mean, as healthy as I am, my immune system probably isn't as strong as yours. I mean, and there's no point. I'm doing just fine. Um, yeah. You're, so you're liking your routine. It's working for you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I do love it. Well, I do. It's yeah, yeah, that's great. What is your perspective on aging and contributing to society? Like, do you have a message to people out there that are in their older years and, you know, feeling like you sitting at home bored and maybe wanting to do other things? And then the other question I have is, what else do you have on your bucket list? Well, let's see. I guess I do have a message, which I, I, I think for most older people is if you can just keep busy, keep your mind active, keep engaged. I don't I don't care if you do volunteer work, if you write books, if you just read books. I mean, it doesn't matter, but keep engaged. I think that's so I think boredom is lethal. It was for me. My kids said if I didn't go do something, they were going to shoot me. I was driving everybody. <laughs> much too much energy to just I was I was I was going that's um and I love going back to school I mean there's so many classes now you can take for free that are for older people or that senior centers or whatever so stay engaged in, in some form or another 
And my bucket list is to do a second book. I'm very interested in this shame. I want to I want to research shame and loneliness. I think they go together. Do we have more time? I want to just tell you one more thing. I don't know if we're yes. running out of time. Go ahead. Go for but it. I, I put together a couple of focus groups. And one of the things that, in fact, what sort of startled me the most was that in, I put together two focus groups. And one the the one thing they both said was that very few of them had ever talked with their illness about their illness to anybody else. This was the focus. This particular focus group was the first time they had shared their issues. And again, they all had different diseases and they were, but their problems were the same. And they were all so happy to find somebody else that had similar issues. And I was startled because I mean, I talk a lot. I'll tell anybody anything. You want to know how I am? You know, I say, how much time do you have? Because <laughs> I'll really tell you. But these women didn't. And I that's one of the things that I really want to research because that's lonely. That's really lonely. And I, I think part of part of the reason they didn't, and this is just my hypothesis, is because they were ashamed of it. They they felt um, that it was almost like being ill was a public manifestation of their inability to manage their lives. And I think that was what kept them quiet. And I really want to talk about that and see what I can come up with. I'm fascinated by it because it's the opposite of me. I think that's why I'm fascinated. Yeah. No, I love that. And I think that it's very true. And like I said, I'm a very bold person. I'm also pretty much an open book, but yeah, me too. you, you, uh, you pointed out something really important at the beginning of the talk is you also have to realize the culture around you and the situation you're in, like being in the health and wellness movement. There's a lot of people that are in the health and wellness movement, whether they subscribe to us particular way of eating or living, or they're an expert in the field. And whenever that happens, it does cause you to take a pause before you talk about certain things, because there is shame, because you're afraid that people are going to start thinking, well, you must have that must have happened because you weren't being perfect yes. about your yes. eating or your living. Right. And so that's been one of my things too using this platform is to encourage people to talk about things because the problem is the more we don't talk about things, the more it reinforces that yeah. feeling yeah. that everybody is perfect unless you mess up. Because the truth is we're all human and things are going to happen. Even if you do everything quote perfectly, which is impossible to be perfect anyway. But, you know, right. I think that the more of us that talk and that discuss what's going on, whether it's our health or some of our symptoms, or even things like marriage and relationships, yeah. <laughs> which I think is another thing that we don't talk about. Um, I think it normalizes some of those things. And then it gives other people courage to speak up. And then going back to longevity, which was one of my big focuses, we know that one of the pillars of lifestyle medicine is connection. Yes. And connecting with others about some of these things is what's really going to help us feel closer to other people. So I think it's really important to encourage ourselves to speak up. Well, and I think that connecting, I, to me, the basis of connecting is disclosure. And I I think by not disclosing how you're feeling, I think what these women, and particularly in the focus group did, was they denied themselves support because as soon as they opened up, they opened up to each other and they all felt better. I mean, imagine that. Talking to other people who have share your issues can be wonderful. And if they don't share your issues, it just can help. It's cathartic just to talk about it. 
and get, I don't know, get some support. I think that's really important. And I think it's really hard to connect if you're not willing to, to disclose and be an open book. I really do. Not exposing your vulnerabilities, that's true. But, oh, well. <laughs> well, this has been a great conversation. Before I get to the very last question, I would love if you tell us where listeners can connect with you and what products and services do you offer? I have no products except my book. And I it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, any of the places you buy, you know, you buy books. You can go to my website, which is susansalinger.com. And that's S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R.com. Uh, and you can order the book from the website. So it's available anywhere. And I hope I hope you will. And my advice is not to get the Kindle because the resource list is something you should, the book, you should have it on your shelf so you can refer to it. I think that's important. Yes, for sure. And that's definitely how I'm going to use this book. I'm going to keep it so that if I ever need to come back to refer to some of the tips in here and the resources, even though I'm a physician, but I think it's important to know that whenever you're the patient, things change in your brain, even no matter how much education right. you have. I think it's important to use these tips so that you can do the best for yourself. Okay, so here is my last question <laughs> for you. And it has it's going back to talking about the three most common hurdles. You talked about women, they put themselves last. And I agree with you that we really need to put ourselves first in order to help take care of more people. Mm -hmm. I know that many women are service oriented to their children and to their families. But when we leave ourselves for last, we're really taking away from that because we don't have that energy, that well-being that we want. Right. So what are what is your number one tip for women that are struggling with giving themselves a more value and importance in their lives? What can they do to bring themselves up near the top of that list? I think it's just really important for all of us to recognize that we are important and that it is important for us to take care of ourselves. I mean, it's, it's not a tip. It's just, it's, it's an is. Um, how you do that, that's probably personal and individual. Um, I do it by just every now and then when I feel overwhelmed with grandchildren or children or whatever, I just say, okay, it's t I need five minutes, 10 minutes. I remember when my kids were young, I would say to the kids, listen, guys, I just need a few minutes. I just got home from work. Give me five minutes and, and I'll we'll talk. We'll, I'll do your homework with whatever it is. But I did deliberately and consciously, and I articulated that I needed the time for myself. And everybody understood. I mean, I didn't take five hours, you know, they're little kids. But by the same token, I did consciously remind myself and the people around me that I need the space occasionally. And I think that that's all, that's all there is to, I mean, it, you just need to do it. Um, and, you know, pinch yourself and rem put, put a string around your finger to remind yourself. <laughs> yeah. We're so just important. having that awareness <laughs> that it's really important to take care of ourselves. It's really important to give ourselves that space right. to be able to have the well-being that we want. So thank you so much. 
I really appreciate you. I really appreciate you going back to school and becoming passionate <laughs> about this topic and writing this book, even through the hard times of writing. I understand how that is. So thank you so much, Susan, for everything that you do. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's lovely. Thank you. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.